Well, welcome to you all. I'm glad to see the elector here today, right? Um, let's, let's begin with prayer. <clears throat> Only thou art holy, there is none beside thee. God in three persons, blessed Trinity. And fathers, we come this morning in this final um, time together in this series on your triune being. We all recognize, Lord, that we, we strive um, to understand this eternal mystery, and our understanding can be clearer, uh, but it will never be complete. And we ask this morning as we press on together that by your mercy and by your grace, uh, you would do what we cannot make happen, that by your Holy Spirit, you would speak and teach, that you'd bring clarity, Lord. And Father, if any of these things happen in this hour that we have together, we know that it will be because of your kindness and because of your grace to us, because you are a God who speaks, and you are a God who desires to be known in your Son. And it's in his name that we pray, amen. Um, well, uh, third week, last week, in, in a series that we've been uh, together on the, on the doctrine of the Trinity, um, and I know that it's, it's kind of hit and miss. Not all of you have been here for all three weeks, so you know, I, 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 I'm sorry because there's, there's a lot that's been built up into this morning. Um, but I should say on the outset, just to kind of put it a little bit into reverse as we move forward, um, to, to reflect on some of the crucial key points that we've been trying to make. And that is, number one, we've made a distinction in here, thanks to Augustine, St. Augustine, between faith and reason. Recognizing that this distinction between faith and reason is not a distinction between a kind of blind faith over against a rightly ordered mind. where that, That's not the distinction that's being made. The distinction that's being made between faith and reason is a distinction between how we understand how we get to God, how we understand God, the creator-creature divide. Do we get to God in an understanding of who God is by human ingenuity and the creativity of our own minds? Or do we understand who God is by His own divine self-disclosure? And that is, God determines Himself from eternity past to be a God who reveals, a God who unveils, a God who allows humanity to understand um, who he is, but he gets to call the shots. We don't get to make God in our own image. And whenever that does happen, by the way, it always goes very poorly. The prophets they could be really sarcastic about this. Um, matter of fact, Isaiah, if you're reading in, in 40 to 55 in the, in the book of Isaiah, Isaiah will say things like, who in the world does the kind of thing that you're doing, Israel? You get a block of wood, and out of that block of wood, you make a chair and you sit in it. And out of that block of wood, you make a table, and you eat on it. And out of that block of wood, you make a god, and you bow and you worship it, and you say, you made me. Who does that sort of thing? So this is kind of um, jab and sarcasm that comes from the prophets when it, when it comes to our making a god in our own image. We don't get to do that. God impinges on us and reveals himself to us in a definitive and sure word, and that is in, in his Son. What does it say in Hebrews chapter 1? And we'll come back to Hebrews this morning a little bit. In Hebrews chapter 1 it says, In the former times God spoke in various and sundry ways. But in these latter days He has spoken to us in... And this is, I think, quite important, the definite article here. In these latter days He has spoken to us in the Son. 
That is the definitive and the final word of Revelation. If we want to know who God is, if we want to understand God and His being, we look to the Son by the Spirit in relationship to the Father. So that was something that we've wrestled with, this faith and reason divide. We've also recognized that our language is ultimately insufficient toward the total reality, but our language does, it's very important to hold into, in the tension, namely, the oneness and the threeness, and the threeness and the oneness. I don't know if you notice how uh, Canon Smalley this morning began his prayer as he led into his sermon. In the name of the one God, who is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. That, that, the way in which Canon Smalley phrased that was actually quite important because it gets at the heart of what we hold together in the doctrine of the Trinity. There is a oneness and a threeness, and there's a threeness and a oneness. In other words, there is one being and a shared being in that one God. That's the language that we use in the Nicene Creed of one being with the Father, of the same substance, light of light. And yet we also recognize that there are real persons within that one being that are differentiated the one from the other. Jesus really prays to something, to someone other than Himself. And yet at the same time, you see how these tensions go back and forth, yet at the same time, when one person within that triune identity does His particular work, He never does it in abstraction from the other two. So that when the Father is doing His work of creating, the Son and the Spirit are involved in that. And by the way, we see that in Colossians chapter 1. Jesus is the agent in Colossians 1 of the creation. By the Son, the world was created and sustained. So it's by the Word of God, the Son of God, that the world was created and sustained. And, by, and this is a side note, so I'm, I'm off script now. Um, this is a side note. It's a good way, I think, for us to talk that way about the created world um, in our families and the way in which we engage one another. Yes, we know that the sun rises, at least from our perspective. The sun rises and the sun sets and the moon does its thing, which affects the tides. All these natural mechanisms in the world that we can count on day in and day out. But it's also a very good thing to, to speak, especially with, with children, I believe, um, that uh, we're not deists. We don't believe that God just sort of set the world in motion, pushed it out there, and now is stepping back on His throne and just watching things go according to their natural processes. He sustains the world even now by His own creative, powerful Word. We believe that. So that when the sun rises again, I think the proper expression of faith is, well, there Jesus goes again. Right? And when the full moon comes out, well, God's at His work again. And when the tides come in and out, that's God who's involved in these natural processes that we see around us and that we, that we take for granted. And, and, and to give you an Old Testament perspective on this, you, and, and there's probably a lot of people who aren't here today who are near water, right? I, I would assume that. Um, and the, the, they're near water. Um, water, for, for you and for me, you know, a trip to the sea, a trip to the lake, a trip to the beach, that's a good thing. Within an Old Testament world, the water, the water is a pernicious, scary presence. It's, it's a scary thing. And you think about this from the standpoint of Genesis chapter 1. What is it that keeps the Atlantic Ocean and the Gulf of Mexico from swallowing Florida? What is that? From a biblical theological standpoint, it is the creative, powerful Word of God. 
He holds back the waters. It's His powerful Word that holds it back. And by the way, a metaphor for judgment in the Old Testament is when God releases His Word and allows the water to envelop them. When the Assyrians come onto the northern kingdom, it's referred to like a river that's been unleashed now onto the northern kingdom of Israel. It's God's powerful Word by His Son that keeps the Atlantic Ocean and the Gulf of Mexico from swallowing up Florida. That's a triune worldview, to give you another way of looking at that. A way of viewing all of reality through the lens that God is active, who is not, in the, who is not a create creature. He's the Creator. But by His own self-determination is organically involved in the processes of the human world and life, your life, by the Spirit, in the Son. And He's involved in that daily. I remember I was on a sabbatical last year, and, and I had a, a, a scholar friend um, who uh, not, not, wasn't a Christian. And he said, Mark, you don't actually believe, do you, um, that God is like involved in the daily affairs of your life? Like, do you really believe that? And I was like, well, I know it sounds crazy, but yeah, right, we do. We really do believe that God is involved. The old language for this, and it's very good language, is that of providence. God is providentially involved in all of the realities of our lives, so determining them for His own glory and His own purposes. And we believe that to be true by the Son and the Spirit. Those are very, very important. So we were talking about all those things. Now, what do I want to talk about today with our time together? I want to talk today with a little bit more maybe practical, I don't like that term too much, but a little more pastoral um, reflection on the significance of the doctrine of the Trinity for the Christian life. A little bit of reflection on, on the doctrine of the Trinity for the Christian life. And I have three or four things I want to talk about as our time will allow. Uh, the, the first one is this. Um, to speak of the Trinity is to speak of the Gospel. Now let me put it another way. To speak of the Gospel is to speak of the Trinity. And I don't know if you feel this way, and it's easy to, because the doctrine of the Trinity is a kind of taxation on the mind, isn't it? I mean, it's taxing intellectually to come to terms with the Trinity. And by the way, if you ever begin to delve into the early church and begin to read the fathers like Athanasius or Hilary of Poitiers or Augustine, as they wrestle to give grammar, theological grammar to the doctrine of the Trinity, you will appreciate even more how intellectually taxing the doctrine of the Trinity is. It's, it's very, very taxing. So it's very easy, I think, to think of the doctrine of the Trinity as that sort of thing that hovers out there somewhere. I know I need to believe it to be a Christian, and yet that's just out there. But the gospel, that has to do with me. But the gospel makes no sense. Let me put it another way. The gospel has no material content without the doctrine of the Trinity. There is no substance to our understanding of the gospel that is the good news in Jesus without the doctrine of the Trinity. We don't get to one without the other. Some of you may be former Presbyterians in here. Um, I'm one myself. So uh, do, do, you may remember this from the Westminster uh, Confession of Faith. Question number one in the catechism. What is the chief end of man or the chief end of humanity? To glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. It's the chief end of... What, what is, why have we been created? That confession of faith asks. Answer, to glorify God 
and to enjoy God. We have been created to glorify God. By the way, that's the big problem that Paul addresses in Romans chapter 1. No longer were they giving glory to God, but they were giving glory to the creature, not to God. That is at the core of what it means to be sinful and rebellious as people turned in on ourselves. No longer giving glory to God. And the gospel is that reorientation of our hearts, our dead hearts, to a life lived beyond ourselves toward God because of what Jesus has done for us fully and completely in the person and work of of Himself in Christ. That is why we move from glorying in ourselves, glorying in the creature, to a life of enjoyment and joy in God. That's what Augustine said in that phrase that said so often it's probably on a t-shirt somewhere. Um, I, I was restless until my heart found rest in thee. I was created for fellowship with you. And I was restless internally until my aching soul found its refuge in in God Himself. That's our chief end. Our worship, the way in which you and I worship, what we just did this morning, my eight-year-old son leaned over to me this morning, he said, my bad parenting, and we said the word worship, and he said, what is that? I'm like, oh man, we'll talk about it. Um, Our worship is shaped by the gospel. Because it's shaped around the triune character of God. God determined Himself. Remember we talked about this last week. God was never lonely. I think that was something else uh, Canon Smalley said this morning. That if God just had perfect people to to be in relationship with, it would just be the Son and the Spirit. He's right on that. God was never lonely. He never sat on the banks of a river, some primordial river, flipping rocks into the river, just wishing that he had someone to fellowship with. And then he thought, well, maybe I'll make humanity. That was never... There's old songs about this, by the way. That was never at the identity or, or the cause of why God created humanity. He was not... Or let me put it positively. God is sufficient unto Himself in an eternal, triune, perfect, complete communion of love. It was perfect. And that's why creation, the created order, is not a necessity to the being of God. It's not. It's an act of pure, unmitigated grace and kindness. And by the way, and again, I'm off script. By the way, that's why I think we enjoy the good things of this world to His glory. Like a good glass of wine. Like a day at the beach. Like all the good things that God gives us in this world that are gifts of His grace that of course can be abused, but they're gifts of His grace to be enjoyed. There's a famous story about Charles Spurgeon, the, uh, probably the most well-known preacher in England, in the UK, maybe even in the Western world uh, in the latter part of the 20th century. As Spurgeon liked to smoke a cigar. Um, apparently he stopped smoking cigars when he saw a, sh- a, a, a cigar shop in London that said, this is the brand Spurgeon smokes. I think that kind of got to him. Um, but uh, he, he apparently, I've uh, read this story, apparently he saw a 12 or 13 or 14 year old boy on the streets of London smoking a cigar. He had one in his hand and, and, and uh, Spurgeon stopped him and he said, uh, young man, I need to ask you a question. Can you smoke that cigar to the glory of God? And, uh, and the boy with a forlorn look said, I'm, I'm afraid I can't. And then Spurgeon said, well, give it to me because I can. Right. Um, it's a recognition. It's a recognition that the created world 
is not necessary to the being of God. It is an act of His kindness and His grace to us to live in the goodness of this created world. And that also gets us, I think, to the, to the notion of what, why the gospel is integral to the, to the being and the identity of God. God is not constrained outside of Himself to be a God for humanity. God determines Himself in His own inner triune act of self-communication to be a God for you and for me. He determined Himself to be a God for humanity, to create a people that would in the end worship and glorify Him. We saw that in the book of Revelation last week a little bit, didn't we? As you move from the messiness of the church in chapter 2 and 3 into the beauty of the heavenly throne room in 4 and 5 where you have the elders and the angels and the nations and the tribes all surrounding the throne of God worshiping the one who is and was and is to come. Why were we created? We were created to glorify Him and to enjoy to enjoy Him. So to speak of the gospel is to speak of the Trinity. God determined in Himself to be a God for you and and for me. Number two, and hopefully we'll have some time for questions. Number two, Jesus is our leader of worship. He is our worship leader. Now I hope in God's kindness, because this has been big for me. Right, And I don't know, maybe it can, in His grace, be big for you as well. Um, a shift in my thinking about what we just did this morning together in the sanctuary, in the nave. I want to read to you from Hebrews chapter 8. Verses 1 and 2. Now this is the point in what we are saying. Or let me put it another way. At this point in the argument, the author of the Hebrews is saying, everything that I've been talking about so far, this is the big deal right here. We have such a high priest, one who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven, a minister in the holy places, I don't normally just want to bandy Greek words around, but here's the word, and see if you can think about our English word that's related to us. He is the liturgos of the heavenly sanctuary. Where do you, what word do you think we get from liturgos? Our liturgy, right? Our, our worship. He is the heavenly minister, the leader of our worship. Do you think about that? I mean, you've, you've heard, those of you who were with us in the interpretation series, and, and, and I talked about it before as well, but Calvin, at his, at his best in Christology, the doctrine of Christ, talked about Jesus as being our prophet, priest, and king. And, and, and as Protestants, and I think most of us here are pretty red-blooded Protestants, I, I, I am, um, as Protestants, we've really emphasized the prophetic character of Christ and His Word. And we, we value the word, and we should. That's right, and 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 um, and, the, and the proper posture, and his kingship, and that is he is the Lord over his church and over his world. He is the king. We don't have Jesus as savior without Jesus as Lord. We don't get to choose the one over against the other. He is the king. But I think we've diminished, or maybe we haven't given proper attention to Jesus's continuing role as priest as liturgos, as liturgy leader in the heavenly throne room. So that when we come together and worship, 
Where two or three are gathered, there I am in your midst. When we come together to worship around the preaching of the Word, and then the visible Word of the sacrament, Word and sacrament, when that happens and we come together around the Spirit, in the Son, to the Father, when that activity is occurring, we are entering into the very presence and, and, and inner triune life of God. This just blows my mind. Because we are in Christ. Isn't that Paul's favorite phrase? We are in Jesus. We're in Him. We have no other kind of worship but mediated worship. There's two kinds of worship. There's Unitarian worship and there's Trinitarian worship. And unfortunately, I think there's a lot of Christians who would confess to be Trinitarian and yet their worship is actually Unitarian in focus. Can I read to you a description of this from James Torrance's work on the Trinity? Let's see if I can find this here. Page 20. This is his description of Unitarian worship. Indeed, uh, this doctrine of worship is in practice Unitarian. That is, we are our own priest without the ongoing priesthood of Christ. It has no doctrine of the mediator or sole priesthood of Christ. It's human-centered. Has no proper doctrine of the Holy Spirit. Is too often non-sacramental. Can engender weariness. We sit in the pew watching the minister doing his thing, exhorting us to do our thing, until we go home thinking we have done our duty for another week. This kind of do-it-yourself with the help of the minister worship is what our forefathers would have called legal worship, not evangelical worship. What the ancient church would have called Arian or Pelagian, and not truly Catholic. We go to church, we sing our psalms and our hymns to God, We intercede for the world. We listen to a sermon. We offer our money, our time and talents to God. No doubt we need God's grace to do it. We do it because Jesus taught us to do it and and left us an example of how to do it. But worship is what we do before God. It's what we do. Whereas, a Trinitarian view of worship, according to Torrance and others, is a recognition that when we come together to worship, we worship through the mediator, Jesus, who is the great worship leader in the heavenly throne room. We participate in that life. Christ's baptism becomes our baptism. Christ's suffering on the cross is what we enjoy when we go to the table. Christ's word is what we have when we hear of the sermon before us. It's a significant reorientation of our thinking about what we do when we worship together. We enter into the very triune life of God because we are in Christ. And in the heavenly throne room, in the heavenly sanctuary, in the heavenly holy of holies, Christ is leading all in worship there. And we participate in that. We're doing something, by the way, that's quite mystical and powerful and transformative when we come together to worship. Because by the Spirit, in Christ, we are worshiping the Father in the very throne room of God. I mean, here's another thing that I was very surprised at. Hebrews chapter 2. This still still just owns me. Uh, This is why he is not ashamed to call them brothers. He's talking about Jesus here. Saying, and now he quotes a psalm. I will tell of your name to my brothers. And in the midst of the congregation... I will sing your praise. Did you hear that? In the midst of the congregation, 
I will sing your praise. Do you know what the quote there from Psalms is telling us? That, that, by the way, becomes first-person speech of Jesus Christ Himself, the risen and ascended Lord. That when we come together and we sing that Jesus Christ, the risen Lord, by the Spirit, is in our midst singing to the Father with us. It's actually um, boggling to the mind. And yet, it causes the heart to rejoice and exult that when we come together in our midst, really, by faith, Jesus Christ, the risen and ascended Lord by His Spirit, is in our midst with His brothers and His sisters singing right along with us. The church looked a little empty today, didn't it? Right? But not from God's perspective. Because Jesus is there in our midst singing to the Father by the Spirit in this triune act of worship that we have together. What is evangelical worship? What is Trinitarian worship? Trinitarian worship is a worship that recognizes the sole priesthood of Jesus Christ. He is our high priest. He stands before the throne of God, ministering on our account, making effective His work for us by the Spirit. And He prays for us. It's, it's quite, um, quite significant. Um, Alright, a few other things I wanted to say. Uh, in this book, and by the way, I, I'm going to put this on my um, recommended list out there. It's by James Torrance entitled Worship, Community, and the Triune God of Grace. It's an outstanding book. Um, Torrance says that there are three ways that our worship is Trinitarian. And listen to these. Number one, we pray to the Father through the Son in the Spirit. But number two, we also pray to the three persons. Do you hear how this is intention? Not, not intention, but how these relate to one another? We pray to the one God. And we pray to the Father through the Son and the Spirit. But we also can pray to the three persons. Come, Lord Jesus. How about this one? Lord, have mercy. Christ, have mercy. Holy Spirit, come. So that we can pray to the three persons as well. And then we give glory to the one God who is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Our worshiping together, our liturgy, would not make sense without the fundamental grammar of the one and threeness and the three in oneness. We would not be able to make sense of what we do together when we pray to one God and then we also make our prayers and addresses to the Father and to the Son and to the Holy Spirit. Now, I wanted to spend my last few minutes with you uh, talking about prayer and praying. Uh, which should make you really nervous. I mean, if there's anything that could sort of heap on, sort of piles of guilt on us, it's whenever someone starts talking about prayer. Uh, T.F. Torrance in this book here said, the first real step, and I, I, I find encouragement in this, the first real step on the road to prayer is to recognize that none of us really know how to pray like we ought to. I'm going to say that again. The first real step on the road to prayer is the recognition that none of us knows how to pray as we ought to. Why is that significant from a Trinitarian standpoint? It's significant from a Trinitarian standpoint because it emphasizes the sole mediatory character of Jesus. I've said it in other contexts, but I don't think we can say it enough. 
Do you realize, as Calvin said, that Jesus does not sit idly in heaven? He doesn't sit idly in heaven. He intercedes for you. He's praying for you. I mean, let's just put it more personally. He knows your name. And He prays to the Father by the Spirit for you. So that your prayers... And why do you pray? Because Jesus tells you to pray. right? You're supposed to do it. So you, you, we pray our prayers become His prayers and His prayers become, become our prayers. There's a pastoral a function to this. It's a gospel-shaped understanding of prayer. You know the, the language about the wonderful exchange? The wonderful exchange is He became a sinner so that we could become righteous. We apply the logic of the wonderful exchange to our praying as well. He prays for us so that our prayers make it to the Father. Right. Which I think should give us a great amount of freedom in our praying life. You know, pray the way you can. Not maybe the way in which we've idealized, idealized and created what prayer should be. Pray the way in which you can. Why? Because Jesus in His mercy and in His grace takes your words and this isn't the right way to put it, but I'll put it this way, cleans them up and presents them to the Father by the Spirit. He takes your words and by the Spirit He prays. And, and you think about this in, in Romans chapter 8. Isn't this true of you? So often, I know it is of me, that the Holy Spirit groans for us because we don't even know how to articulate our own groaning. He prays for us because we don't even really know how to get the, the words the words out. I wanted to read this story to you from Torrance. I found it very moving. He said he was teaching out at Fuller Seminary. He's from Scotland. He said he was teaching out at Fuller Seminary, uh, which is near the beach. And he was walking on the beach and he saw this man who was rather forlorn. And uh, the man said, my wife of 45 years is dying. Um, I grew up in a Presbyterian church. I have no faith. I don't even know how to pray. And um, Torrance looked at him and said, well, he gave him a good view on what Torrance would call the vicarious humanity of Jesus. Jesus is praying for you. Jesus, he gave him the gospel. He told him the good news. And this is what happened after Torrance gave him that good news of the gospel, that Jesus is praying for you, that not just to look to yourself, but to look toward what he is doing. He said, the next day, he came looking for me. And he said, I've been telling my wife what you told me. Tell me more. And the third day he came again, do me a favor and come and speak to my wife. Of course, I said. And he took me to her by bedside. And there she was, a frail, dying woman. And what did I talk to her about? I spoke about the Trinity. I did not use that word. But I spoke to them about the loving God, about our Father who has given us Christ and the Spirit to draw us to Himself in prayer. And about Jesus Christ who died for us, uh, that we might be forgiven and receive the gift of sonship and be led by the Spirit into eternal life. I spoke about Christ, our great High Priest, touched with the feeling of our infirmities, interceding for us, opening our own hearts to this reality by the Spirit. And I prayed with them both. And a few weeks later, he wrote to me to tell me that his wife had passed on, quote, safe in the arms of Jesus, end quote. I mean, do you, do you, have you considered that before? 
I mean, the doctrine of the Trinity, which seems so esoteric, um, so sort of radically intellectual, cerebral, conceptual, how radically pastoral and transformative it, it is for us to recognize that God, in His own triune being, that Jesus, by the Spirit, is interceding as our high priest for you and for me. He's the high priest that we're told who knows our infirmities. He, he's, he's human. So he knows what it is, the frailness of being human. He's been touched with our infirmities and he prays for us in light of that. He knows that on our account and he prays for us. He intercedes on our behalf. I mean, this sounds, I don't know, this is maybe cliche-ish, but I, I, I found myself multiple times in various, at various crossroads of life saying this, Jesus, please pray for us. Please. I, it was, I, don't know what to, I don't even know how to get words out now, but would you, in your mercy, please um, pray for us now. That is a gospel-shaped understanding of the continued mediatorial role of Christ. He is your mediator, and we have a mediator, and that is good news for you and for me. It's a gospel-shaped understanding of the Trinity. Okay. Let's talk about it. Right behind you, David. Jesus, as a mediator and intercessor, implies a hierarchy in the Trinity. Is that true? Okay. Now, this is, we've talked about this for, for a few times in the past few weeks. Um, and this was, I think, the great contribution of, of some of the fourth century theologians, uh, namely the Cappadocians like Gregory of Nazianzus, Basil the Great to give a kind of articulation to how the Bible presents God and His triune being. And there's a naming of God that has to do with His being, a sharing of substance, and there's no subordination in that at all. There's a shared of, a sharing of being. To be God is to be God, God of God, light of lights, very God of very God. But there's also a naming of relationship that is within what we would call the divine economy, within the way in which God has revealed Himself, that on the ear may sound subordinationist, but it's not subordinationist on the level of being. There's no subordination there. But there might be a subordination. I don't even like using that terminology, frankly, because it gets very dicey. But there are different roles that are played within the triune life of God to where the Son submits Himself to the Father. But that's not a submission of being. That's a submission of role within God's own redemptive purposes. So it might on the surface... That's why... Every heretic in the early church had their Bible verse on their side, every one. And the best, and, but the hard work is putting together the, whole, the totality of the Bible, and I'm using Irenaeus' languages here, so that when the mosaic is put together, I've got the king and not a fox. Think about these mosaic, these tiles that they had in, in the ancient world, the Greco-Roman world. You put these tiles together, and you, you need a guidebook to do that. Um, and so the way in which the Bible comes together so that you have the king and not a fox is a recognition of a difference of naming when it comes to being and a difference of naming when it comes to relationship and, and within the triune life. And I think that's, that's, that's really important. Well, I'll ask a stupid question. <clears throat> I guess it's my understanding that you know, Jesus was our Savior before the beginning of creation. That's my understanding. Was his incarnation for our benefit, and he he he's always been the son. But in, from our perspective, he became the son. It, his incarnation, he has a 
carnal body, it's my understanding again, now in heaven. But are, are those really from our perspective to try and grapple and understand it, or are those God's perspective, you know, the triune God's perspective as well? Yeah. If he's I, unchanging, I, I guess he was always the. Yeah, I mean, uh, you're, you, you are, you're, you're, it's, it's, that's not a stupid question. Um, and your finger is on one of the hot debates right now in, uh, in Trinitarian theology. And, I mean, even for one of my favorite theologians, Karl Barth, I mean, I think at the heart of Barth's theology is a wrestling with that particular thing. If God is immutable, how then, and that is unchanging, how then the incarnation? And how do we understand the incarnation? Because John 1, he took on flesh. There was a time when he was not enfleshed. And the old Reformation theologians used the language of, and forgive me here, but it's, it's the Logos incarnandus, the Logos on the way to being incarnate, and then the Logos incarnatus. And I think that's a very helpful way of understanding that the second person of the Trinity, the Logos, was never abstracted in the eternal life of God from Jesus of Nazareth. But that is something that takes place in time and space in a particular way so that the Logos is either on his way to that and then once he is that, then in, for eternity he, he remains fully God, fully man in one person. But even that is, I mean, we're, we're using our language because we're talking about an e- the eternal identity of God and you have theologians who are pressing that now um, when it comes to God's, uh, to the humanity of God even in eternity past. It gets really, really tricky. But no, I, don't, I do not think that that... It's just something that we are imposing. I think it has to do with God's very being in Jesus. So that the, the corporal side, the human side, his, his full humanity is something that's very important and it's real. And that's, 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 that, that's real to his, to his ongoing identity. That, that, I mean, I, I, that was really convoluted. I'm so sorry. It is a huge debate right now. And one that I'm trying to track because I, I think it's fascinating. Oh, I, I, that, was, that was rough. Sorry. In our day-to-day um, pursuit of truth, in our personhood of body, soul, and spirit, I think it was Paul who said, My, his spirit will witness with your spirit that you are his. And yet in First John, we know John said, These things I've written to you that you might know you're saved. So it seems like we're having to learn that same truth by the spirit witnessing with our spirit, but also in our soul through our mind, will, and emotions. Could you address... We've talked about the Trinity, but then there's our personhood and how we come to those truths. Oh, goodness. I mean, these, these, all of these are thorny issues, you know, related to um, the constitution of our, of our being, body, soul, spirit, or just body, soul. I mean, these, these, are, these are long and uh, tried debates. Um, I have to give some more thought on how to address that the way in which you're addressing it. But I think getting at the core of what you're raising and that is that the Spirit of God um, is sent to us. That was our reading today within, uh, within uh, um, our worship service this morning. That the Spirit of God is sent to us because there is a time when we were not ready for certain things, but He brought all things into remembrance. So the role of the Spirit of God in opening our own hearts so that we can receive is very, very important within God's own triune determination to be a God for us. It's the Spirit of God that awakens, that quickens. 
It's, it's the Spirit of God that's at work in baptism to take these waters and make them effective for the means of grace that they are so that the Spirit of God is at work doing those things is important in the in elongated and continuing extension of Jesus' person and work in the life of the church. How the Spirit of God relates to our spirit, I think you know, it's not, there's a distinction that needs to be held, that creator-creation distinction. But at the same time, it is the Holy Spirit of God that does open up our own dead spirits, Ephesians 2, 8, and 9. We are dead in our trespasses and sins, and He awakens us and He quickens us and makes us alive so that we can now believe what is, what is true. We need the work of the Spirit to do that. Now, so there, there's definitely something at, at, at play there. The way in which to articulate that in terms of the threeness, you know, Augustine went down that road um, later on in that book we talked about, and it's the most controversial part of his, his work on the Trinity to this day, is uh, the relationship of the triune nature of God to our triune personhood. And I've, I'm doing some reading on that, but I want to sort of hold off on, um, on making a judgment on it. But it's, been a, but it's been a long discussion within the history of the church. And I think Augustine's reading on that has been the most controversial of his, of his offerings. Um, when you're talking about, you know, the spirit. Jason Wallace is here, by the way. He, he can clarify all of that. <laughs> um, I've come from a lot of different denominational background. And so my thinking is kind of evolving no we, when the guy comes up and tells the man do you i mean can, could he say that the spirit is praying for him or that i guess that's what i'm trying to figure out can i say something the holy spirit is praying for you is he praying for him before he becomes a believer or in the thing of you know the elect well um i know that if he's part of the elect then he will believe i think you know what i'm saying <laughs> i can't articulate no I, I hear you i hear you um we 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 leave that we leave those kind of questions about the extent of god's election um to god himself i mean i think the best of those who affirm the predestinarian understanding of god's salvation leave the scope of it um within within the orbit of god i mean it's never in our in our um it's never in our wheelhouse to make those kinds of calls. Um, so, and, and that the gospel offer is universal. In other words, we never discriminate in the, in the offer of the gospel. So, yes, I think we would, could speak very clearly that, you know, about God's will and desire for this person to come and, and to know him. I think we would do that without, without flinching. Um, and then the way in which God makes that effective, that's his business, which, by the way, should make should alleviate us of a great deal of, of sort of, of burden to make something happen. God's the one who has to do that kind of work. Um, and he does that uh, according to his own, his own determination. I don't know if I would. I'd have to, I've never quite thought of it that way. I don't, I don't know if I would articulate it that way. But I think maybe what I would say to my friend is I am. And because I'm praying for you, that, again, is entering into what we were talking about before. So because of that, yes, and that, that, that enters into God's own very um, triune life of self-communication because of Christ's continued intercessory role. So in a derivative, not in a derivative sense, but in a sense, yes, I mean, one could say that. But I don't think I'd lead that way. I think I'd lead by saying, I'm, I'm, I'm praying for you. Sure. Yeah. Okay. 
we need to go. Blessings.